Welcome. I'm Warren Odess Gillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Llewellyn Drong on February 28, 2023. Llewellyn was raised in the Disciples of Christ Church, its origins coming out of the Second Great Awakening in the early 19th century in the U.S., when Protestant Christianity was spread through revivals. Llewellyn tells the story of how his spiritual journey led him to the Baha'i faith and then how being a Baha'i caused him to look back at milestone incidents in his life that led him on that path. I started the interview by asking Llewellyn where he grew up, and what was it like growing up there? I grew up in a small town called Bonner Springs, which is about uh, between 15 and 20 miles outside of Kansas City, Kansas, uh, west of Kansas City, Kansas. It was uh, a typical small mid-America town, primarily uh, an agricultural service town, although it did have some other things going for it. There was a cement factory nearby, uh, part of the uh, Lone Star Company that employed a lot of people, and there were a handful of other little manufacturing operations too. What was your spiritual life like growing up? It got more interesting the older I got. I grew up within the Disciples of Christ Church, DLC. For those who may not be aware of that church, it's a church that came out of the uh, Second Great Awakening in the 19th century, which was a big religious movement of people trying to get a sense of both mission and, and heart in their religion after a long period of rationality in religion, which was sort of the character of Christianity after the Renaissance got rolling. So Second Great Awakening, a very American phenomenon, and it had strong Presbyterian influences. So it was a Protestant church, Bible-related, very broad-minded because of its origins. My family's involvement with that goes back to uh, certainly my grandparents on my mother's side and uh, possibly a little bit prior to that. Interestingly enough, my father came from an old country Lutheran background. His father was Slovakian and his mother was Polish, immigrants. When my dad married and moved to Bonner Springs, he just moved into his new wife's church. And this uh, horrified my paternal grandparents. And the story, as I understand it, is that Around the time I was, I don't know, four, five years old, they actually made a journey down to Kansas to uh, visit my folks and ostensibly visit me. As I understand the story, they offered my folks $100 to take me back to Washington so they could raise me as a good Lutheran. (laughs) They were very concerned about my soul. It tells me something about what religion meant to my dad's family. Mm-hmm. Uh, likewise, on my mom's side, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, was a, a pillar of the church, as well as being a, a very outstanding 
man in the small town, a merchant, mayor, member of a, a good many organizations like the Masons, the Odd Fellows, and so on. I mean, he was, he was really an, an outstanding person, very well known and very widely respected. A lot of that respect, of course, was tied to the church that I grew up in. So I would hear about him from time to time, even though he died before I was born. The influence of Louis, as he was known, Llewellyn Shockley David was his name. He was known as Louis. The influence of Louis carried on for quite a while. As you were growing up, you were quite involved in the church through high school? Not involved to the point that I was engaged in a lot of the activities of the church. Certainly a regular attendee. There were times that my dad was working and my mom maybe wasn't feeling well or something, and I would take myself to church. And so I took church very seriously because I recognized, you know, this was a serious thing amongst everybody that I knew, and, and certainly my folks. Hmm. What was your spiritual journey that ultimately led you to the Baha'i faith? I want to start with this. There's a passage from Baha'u'llah. A lot of people, including Baha'is, are not aware of. Baha'u'llah uh, being the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. Ah, yes. This is in a book called The Dawnbreakers, which was written by an eyewitness of events in the days prior to the establishment of the Baha'i faith. There was a, a precursor faith to it called Babaism, and Baha'u'llah was involved in this. What time frame was this? This is the early 19th century. Okay. Okay. So we're talking like the 1840s and thereafter. And this quote came up later in my Baha'i life and it had a tremendous impact on me in reflecting on exactly the, uh, the question that you presented. Baha'u'llah is, is quoted by the author of Dawnbreakers as saying, Be thankful to God for having enabled you to recognize his cause. Whoever has received this blessing must, prior to his acceptance, have performed some deed which, though he himself was unaware of its character, was ordained by God as a means whereby he has been guided to find and embrace the truth. As I begin to unpack this story, just bear in mind that later on in my Baha'i life, when I ran across this quote, you can bet that anybody, any Baha'i with a curious mind, is going to be sort of tickled. You know, their memories are going to be kind of tickled. Their, their curiosity is going to be tickled about, boy, what is it that I did? What could it possibly be? So I spent a lot of time thinking about this. This had been over the span of a couple of years. I kept, when the opportunity and the inclination arose, I would think back, think back. What could I possibly have done, you know? Possibly something that uh, I was unaware of its character is what Baha'u'llah said. All right, all right. So maybe I'll never know. But I worked back and worked back. And it was an interesting journey going backwards because I began to realize some things that were indeed a part of my spiritual journey and begin to kind of appreciate the path that I wound up on. Well, here's, here's the deal. Here's where it ended up. I remembered Sunday school in my church. 
I was about the fourth grade in Sunday school. And I was old enough to get a grasp of the significance of what the teacher was saying when she introduced the idea that Jesus Christ was going to return. Well, in my young mind, I got to thinking, that's a very big deal. And if that's the case, given everything else I was learning along with that, I sure don't want to miss it. I want to be one of those people that are paying attention. That was a part of the lesson that day. I believe that my, that, that journey really opened up shortly after I heard I learned that in Sunday school in my church. Because for a number of evenings after that, I remember staying up late, just sitting up in my bed, praying to the Almighty, explaining that I understand it's not likely to happen in my lifetime, but boy, if it does, don't let me miss it. I was very earnest about this. Eventually, this kind of faded away like many things fade away. Uh, but I really remember uh, the energy that I put into that. Don't let me miss it. So as I continued to grow up and mature, I continued my involvement with the church, and especially in Sunday school and so on, as I moved from level to level. And then the time came that I departed for Lawrence, Kansas, to go to the University of Kansas. When I arrived at KU, I started off with, in terms of this spiritual experience, the religious experience, feeling very firm about what things were. But this was an opening onto the world. And I began to realize some realities about other denominations, and even some realities about other faiths and realities about practices that didn't square up with what I understood the messengers of God to be laying forth. I was pretty quick to develop a kind of cynicism. I took the, took a very calibrated approach because I realized, you know, this is, this goes beyond just life in this world. You know, I need to take care of myself spiritually, but if there's something wrong here, that's just as important as getting something right. Over time, I began to realize, okay, there's something funny about the Protestantism or something funny about the church that I was in. It, it, it didn't quite measure up to some things that seemed to be crucial for the times that I was living in. Can you give some so, examples? It seemed to me that there was far and away too much discord in the world for Jesus's message to have really taken hold. I was attributing that to the practices and maybe a little bit of narrowness in a broad-minded church, mind you, a little bit of narrowness of perspective that was created and caused a lot of hampering by all the sectarianism. I thought there, there ought to be more coherence if all these people are really turning to Jesus, there ought to be more coherence. Well, there isn't. Something's wrong 
because there's only one Jesus. But there are hundreds, if not thousands, of Christianities. Not a good scene. And so I decided, you know, there is something wrong there. I need to extricate myself from that for my own good and try to pay attention to the realities that are out there and not just blindly depend upon the, uh, the understandings that I had acquired at that point. In time, because of these very things, I began to have questions about Jesus himself. So I thought, God is the thing. God is the thing. So if there are questions about Jesus, I need to take them to the one who sent him. Okay. So I set Jesus aside. I mean, I, I experimented with that for quite a while. Can I ask you, what was it about your understanding or the church's understanding of Jesus that was concerning you? The thing that was concerning me wasn't necessarily the understanding of any individual church. It was the fact that somehow the reality, the potency, the truth of Jesus's message wasn't being picked up by people in general and pulling them together. Instead, it was breaking them apart. And I thought that's evidence that Jesus is not all that everybody wants him to be. That's evidence that I need to consider, who am I following here? Is he more fallible than I had been told? Can't be sure. For my own sake, I better check it out. And in order to do that realistically, I better just set him aside. God is the big player in the picture. I better start with him. Because of one episode and another, I moved to Topeka briefly. I was only there for about a month, month and a half or so. And during that time, I had evolved this to the point that maybe God is not real. Hmm. Maybe that's a fantasy. That would explain why I'm seeing the things about Jesus and his followers that I'm seeing. That would explain why my uncertainties and doubts about the church are where they are. Maybe God is just a figment of our imaginations. And so I decided at one point that I just needed to set that aside too. So... <laughs> I was an atheist for about 36 hours. <laughs> the, thing that, uh, the thing that broke that, and I think that's the right verb, it, it broke it. The thing that broke that is I was assaulted on the streets of Topeka one evening. In the course of that, I found my, in my mind, I was turning immediately to my maker, appealing for assistance. What was going on inside of me was so striking after the episode was done. I came out of the episode with, uh, you know, sort of a knocked up face, but that's all. When I came out of it, I realized, okay, there seems to be something intuitively going on here. I didn't have language for it at the time. 
but looking back on it, I think that that's the way I would describe it. It was something intuitively going on there. I was responding to someone bigger than me that I went to automatically at some level, apparently, I really believe in an almighty. Okay, well, that was really interesting and very, very, uh, very much a turning point. There's another quote that almost comes to mind here. <laughs> and if it pops, I may revert back Okay. and give that because it belongs there. Sure. Oh, it's the tablet of the seeker. In the Baha'i writings, Baha'u'llah wrote this magnificent tablet that is popularly known amongst Baha'is as the tablet of the seeker. In that, he explains how the seeker and the believer should conduct their lives. It can be inferred in the tablet that we are seekers all our lives, always seeking to grow ever closer, ever closer, no matter how close we get, ever closer to the infinite almighty. A journey that you begin but you never finish. Just a wonderful idea. And one passage in that, Baha'u'llah explains that the seeker and I'm not going to recall the exact words, but the, the seeker should eliminate all knowledge. Just eliminate it. Clean slate. Start with nothing. Well, the neat thing about what happened to me in Topeka is that apparently I had achieved that. I had erased the church. I had erased Jesus. And I got to the point of actually erasing God himself for, as I say, 36 hours. I made the decision 36 hours, I got beat up, and I had my epiphany. Knocked some sense into me. I mean, you, you, can, you can draw your own conclusions about that. Uh, but I had that episode. At that point, I had cleaned my slate. Absolutely cleaned my slate. These are understandings that I only recognized years afterward. When I began to think back on my own spiritual journey for various reasons at various times. So there I am. I returned to Lawrence, where the University of Kansas is, and got myself reestablished and, and, and realized, okay, if I'm accepting God, then I need to find how he's speaking to us. And the only reasonable thing for me to do is to try to take some kind of an approach to where I'm examining all the available faiths at hand to see which one seems to be the real avenue to being near God, knowing what he wants of us, living a godly life. I'd already begun this a little bit and checking a church or two, and I resolved one evening to um, check out the Jewish community. I decided that's a good place to really make an earnest beginning, a deliberately focused beginning. And so I went to work that evening. I was working a, an evening job. I went to work that evening with that in my mind. Well, what do you know? That is the very evening that I stumbled upon a notice on a bulletin board about the Baha'i faith and firesides, which are gatherings hosted by Baha'is to sit back and, and talk about the faith, deal with questions. Maybe there's a little presentation about the faith. Uh, it's a very informal gathering for discussion. There was a phone number, so I called it, and 
went to my first fireside, which was followed by a second, by a third, and so on. This went on for about six months. Now, there's some interesting little smaller stories in here, but in the interest of not becoming tedious, I'll just say I got to a point where I decided that I needed to commit to this. I needed to commit because it seemed to address everything that I was intuitively concerned about and more. A little doubtful. I turned to my maker and I said to him prayerfully, I recognize there is something really right about Baha'i. I want to try this. If ever I find anything about the faith I think is off, I think is not right, you come first. I will give the question a fair shake. I'll give it time and I will give an honest effort to try to understand. But if that fails, if that breaks down, you're first before anything Christian, anything Jewish, anything Baha'i, whatever name you want to put on it. And subsequently, I signed my declaration card. Which is what? It's an administrative protocol within the Baha'i faith. If you feel that you have become a believer and you want to enroll in the faith, you make a declaration. You can do it on this card. And so this card is the administrative device to get you on the rolls, send you various materials and so on. Your national community becomes aware that you've made this declaration and you're in. It's a very simple process. It's not like an initiation or anything. It's just an administrative step. You sign the card, you make your declaration. It goes to the institutions of the faith. They enroll you. Well, I can only say I have been a Baha'i for half a century. And I have not treated it tenderly. I have really, really questioned things that I thought should be legitimately questioned. I held to my promise with God. But in the end, everything shook out right. So after half a century, here I am. I'm still a Baha'i. Here's an interesting bit, and this will be significant later. That card was not sent in. The secretary dropped the ball. And for a year, I was basically a member of the local community because everybody knew me and everybody knew that I had declared my belief. But I wasn't on the national rolls and I wasn't getting the national materials and so on. And about a year later, I brought this up with my fellow Baha'is and to the degree that they looked into it. I'd brought it up a couple of times before, just sort of conversationally, but I decided I, I need to lean on this a little bit. And so they looked into it and they found out that the card had never been sent in. So I had to go through it again, which is fine. I don't mind. 
missed out on a year of of the national publications that would have been sent me, but you know, no great loss to me because it's all a spiritual matter. It's not a matter of administration. Your faith in God and, and faith in Baha'u'llah, it's a spiritual matter. You don't put that on a card. So nothing lost, just an administrative screw up. Now, the significant thing is that I arrived at the faith and continued in the faith with still this little bit of cynicism. It becomes cynical now. A little bit of cynicism about Jesus. Even though there are many places in the writings where Jesus is referred to, Jesus is even quoted. The Bible is quoted. But I sort of held it at a distance because I had my skepticisms. And besides that, amongst the Baha'is that I knew, there was an emphasis on forward-looking. This is the revelation for this age. Christianity has had its time. There's a good deal there that we do not need to turn our attention to. So I didn't wind up learning more about Christianity. I kind of fell into sync with setting Jesus aside because the Baha'i community at that time, at the level of maturity it was at, of greater importance to just pick up one spiritual life and look to what we had to do, look to growing the future, look to building everything that Baha'u'llah and his son Abdu'l-Baha advised us to work toward. So I was that way for a number of years, good many years. And then this quote that I read at the outset came into my life and started a whole bunch of gears turning. It took a long time for that to kind of pay out, as it were. And when it did, when it did, I began to think hard about that little boy that had come home from Sunday school and propped himself up in bed at the night and was praying earnestly that knowing that it's silly to think it's going to happen in my lifetime, you know, that Jesus would return. But if he does, don't let me miss it. Don't do that to me, please. Please. I was pleading with him. I really was. When I recalled that, that was a thunderclap. That was really a thunderclap. Because... When I pieced it together, I realized Jesus had answered my prayers. Jesus had led me to Baha'u'llah. And then Baha'u'llah, with infinite patience, Lordy, <laughs> infinite patience and grace led me to Jesus. Holy mackerel. In the Baha'i faith, we have this idea about, well, not just an idea, we have a conviction about the unity of religion. Eternal in the past, eternal in the future. This 
eternal faith of God. Pointing out that each of the messengers that we have had, each one has brought something that has advanced mankind spiritually. Like teachers in a school system. The second grade teacher is not going to lie to you. But she's not going to teach you calculus if you're not ready. And in the second grade, who's ready? So this is the nature of all these revelators through time. And Baha'u'llah sets forth the idea that if you understand the unity of the spiritual education that God's messengers has been giving mankind over thousands of years, then you understand the unity of religion. Part of that thunderclap that I described was the realization that not only did I have a greater perspective on what that meant, I was living it. I was living it. It was a part of my soul and spirit that I had started with an appeal to Jesus, that I had come to a culmination with Baha'u'llah, who helped me understand and accept Jesus, who got me going on all this. That's unity. That's the real thing. The unity of religion is not just a kind of sense of uh, communal comradeship and everybody appreciating everybody's diversity, as important as that is. No, 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 no. It is learning to live this reality that we're a part of something that has an age, age-old legacy through a succession of teachers that goes back before Adam, if you care. I told you I had another quote because I was anticipating this question. So let me scroll down to this here. Because I've done a compilation of stuff. Ah, here it is. Who is a Baha'i? I sometimes like to tell my Baha'i friends, I'm a devoted Baha'i. I'm not a very good one. <laughs> okay, but maybe that's a digression. Here's the quote. And this is from Abdul Baha, who is the son of Baha'u'llah, someone who was designated by his father as a center of the covenant that holds us all together. This is from a book called Abdu'l-Bahá in London, and it's a record of an interview. I have never heard of Baha'u'llah, said a young man. I've only recently read about this movement, but I recognize the mission of Abdu'l-Bahá and desire to be a disciple. I've always believed in the brotherhood of man as the ultimate solvent of all our national and international difficulties. Abdu'l-Bahá responds. It makes no difference whether you have ever heard of Baha'u'llah or not. The man who lives the life according to the teachings of Baha'u'llah is already a Baha'i. On the other hand, a man may call himself a Baha'i for 50 years. <laughs> and if he does not live the life, he's not a Baha'i. An ugly man may call himself handsome, but he deceives no one. <laughs> So, 
sometimes the question comes up, so when did you become a Baha'i? And the customary answer has to do with when somebody signed their card. But I already explained that's an administrative step. It has nothing to do with the heart. You know, it has to do with head and ordering things in our society and so on. Baha'u'llah's followers didn't sign cards. People in the days of Abdul Baha didn't sign cards. No. So when did I become a Baha'i? When I had my epiphany about the unity of religion? It might have been years after I, I had signed my card that it finally snapped for me. Was it the second time they sent in my card? No. Dismissed that one. How about the first time? No, 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 no. And that's the first time. Okay. Was it when I was dealing with my clean slate, laying on the pavement of Topeka with a bruised face? Was it when I went to Lawrence and realized that there was something I didn't get? There was something wrong. And I really began to watch for something in earnest. Was it when I was eight or nine years old, sitting up in bed, imploring Jesus to make sure not to leave me behind? Was it even before that? So somebody will ask me, when did you become a Baha'i? Answer is, hell if I know. <laughs> Honestly, I really don't know. And when you phrase the question, you know, about my spiritual path or journey, or something like that, mm -hmm. it really was. It was a path full of all kinds of obstacles, twists and turns, unpredictable vistas that just overwhelmed me with their beauty and some really shadowy, chilly kinds of turns and dips that left me with tremendous doubts. Yeah. What was it you heard about the Baha'i faith at the first fireside that had you continue to go? The way they talked about the unity of religion, unity is a big word in the Baha'i faith, Unity in general, uh, unity of mankind, regardless of racial or class or national, regardless of any factor. If you're a human being, you are more than entitled to being a part of the unity of mankind. That is a grace of God, to be a part of the unity of mankind. It's not God's fault that mankind doesn't get that, okay, sometimes. But as Baha'is, we have that very much spelled out for us in terms of what we have to do to fulfill the charges that Baha'u'llah has handed off to us. We have to do it in the light of this unity. My understanding of all that began at that first fireside with the first lessons about the unity of mankind and then the unity of religion. And there were some other unities that were spelled out, and they also laid out a, a body of principles that Baha'u'llah had put forward about how mankind needed to order its affairs. 
It was interesting to me that they weren't laws. They were principles. Here are principles to guide your understanding and to guide your work toward bringing mankind's spiritual potential forward. Your last name is interesting, Drong. What's the ethnicity of your last name? It's ostensibly Slovakian. I say ostensibly because if you know anything about Eastern European history, you know how the borders are kind of sloppy over time. But for convenience, we call it Slovakian. It means stick. Stick like something taken off of a tree. Okay? And I'm sure that that has an interesting provenance. You know, because some sticks are more useful than others. Some are more symbolic than others. So it kind of begs some questions. Llewellyn is Welsh, and it means lion-like. And I go by my middle name because it's kind of a salute to my grandfather, Llewellyn Shockley David. The next generation had a Llewellyn Sydney David. I was named David Llewellyn Drong. I named my son Alistair Llewellyn Drong. So this has become sort of a family thing. And so my first name is David, as I just alluded to. And that means beloved. So it is interesting to me that my name means beloved lion-like stick. I have thought earnestly about that, and I thought, you know, there's something there to live up to. There's something there to live up to. I have a special notion about my name. Try to use it to guide me. Well, Llewellyn, thank you so much for taking this time to tell us your story and your spiritual journey. Thank you. Well, thanks for asking. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Llewellyn Drong, a Baha'i for 50 years, telling his spiritual journey starting with the Disciples of Christ Church when he was a child. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel A Baha'i Perspective. You can find the podcast on Spotify and iTunes. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Truthfulness is the foundation of all the human virtues. Without truthfulness, progress and success in all the worlds of God are impossible. Impossible for any soul. Impossible. Any soul impossible any any soul possible yeah for any soul
Through the light of thy oneness 
Well, Abraham and Sarah, childless did remain, but Abraham, he praised the Father's name. He looked up and saw three angels who were standing in his door. They said, God ain't finished yet, God said for more. We've got to walk, walk a little farther to gather over yonder. we got to walk, walk a little farther than we well, people laughed at Noah when the skies were turning gray. They said, Woe unto you, evil on that day. When the rain begins to fall and when you hear the thunder roar, you'll know God ain't finished yet, get set for more. St. Paul sailed on a mission, but his boat went down to sea. He said, I know Jesus watches over me. So he shouted hallelujah when he washed up on the shore. God ain't finished yet, get set for more. We've got to walk, walk a little farther to gather over yonder. We've got to walk, walk a little farther than we've ever walked before. We've got to walk, walk a little farther down that long, long road. God ain't finished yet, get set for more. Arabs in the desert lived just like pagan tribes Till the prophet brought the law to change their lives He said, on that resurrection day when Gabriel blows his horn God ain't finished yet, get set for more We've got to walk up a little farther to him Gathered over yonder, we've got to walk up a little farther than we Ever walked before, we got to walk up a little farther down that long, long road. Got it finished yet? Get set for more. Well, all the gods' religion, their messages the same, but the lack of harmony our troubles came. But come that morning, glory revolt in the Matthew 24. We know that God ain't finished yet. Get set for more. We got to walk, walk a little farther to gather over yonder. We got to walk, walk a little farther than we've ever walked before. We got to walk, walk a little farther down that long, long road. God ain't finished yet, get set for more. We got to walk, walk a little farther to gather over yonder. We got to walk, walk a little farther down that long, long road. Where there is love, where there
much trouble Nothing is too much trouble Where there is love Where there is love Nothing is too much trouble Nothing is too much trouble There is always time, time, time 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 Where there is love Where there is love Nothing is too much trouble Nothing is too much trouble Where there is love Where there is love Nothing is too much trouble Nothing is too much trouble And there is always time, time, time 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 Nothing is too much trouble Nothing is too much trouble Where there is love Where there is love Nothing is too much trouble Nothing is too much trouble There is always time Always time